change our mind about you, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today our discussion will be devoted to commemorating the events of this Good Friday, Easter weekend, which occurred nearly 2,000 years ago. In the previous two episodes, we reviewed the scriptures from Jesus' arrest through to the administration of his death sentence by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. During each stage of that process, we pointed out the lessons Jesus intended to teach us through his experience. We left off by saying that there was at least one more vital lesson he intended to teach us. So let's pick up the story now from that point. As he was led away to be crucified, there were many who followed him, including some number of women who were mourning and crying for him. It is to these women he turned and said in Luke 23, we're going to read verses 28 through 31. He said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Verse 30. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. What Jesus is doing is he's warning them that perilous times are ahead. And these times will be especially difficult for for nursing mothers or for families with small children. And, of course, no one wants their children to endure such times, such horrors. Verse 31, For if people do these things when the tree is green, in other words, in relatively good times, what will happen when it is dry? Now, in this situation, Jesus also recognizes that these women don't really understand what's happening. He knew that there was no need to weep for him. The Roman soldiers, yes, they were killing his body, but they could not take away his life. He understood that. But the women, however, did not understand this. They thought his life was being taken from him because they thought that if the body is killed, life is over. Yet, what also was happening with him was a gross miscarriage of justice. They saw this, the women saw this, so he emphasizes the fact by telling them that the gross injustice being inflicted upon him is occurring during relatively good times. He then reasons that if this is taking place when the surroundings are teeming with life, so to speak, How much worse will it get when everything around you speaks of death? He won't need to endure those times, is what he's saying, but they will. And that's why he wants them to weep for themselves and not him. After saying this, Jesus continues walking on the road to Golgotha with Simon of Cyrene carrying his cross behind him. Once they reach Golgotha, Jesus is nailed to his cross and hangs there, along with two criminals, one on each side of him. As they're hanging there, Jesus says in Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they are doing. In this statement, Jesus applies the gift of forgiveness to the lack of awareness on the part of those around him. What are they not aware of? They are not aware of what is really happening in these circumstances. We continue to see this play out in the remarks made by those who were there around him, those present. First, there were the rulers who sneered at him in verse 35. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then there were the soldiers who also said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself, in verse 37 of Luke 23. Then finally, even one of the criminals said, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us, in verse 39. Why did he not save himself? Why didn't he prove concretely right then and there that he was the Messiah by coming down from the cross and saving those crucified with him as well? Very simply, because he would not have completed his mission. His mission was to lay down his life only to take it up again, as he said in John chapter 10 and verses 17 and 18. And when the power of God is behind a mission, as it was in Jesus' mission here, good things happen. For example, the other criminal while he likely did not know all the details of what was going on himself, he understood that there was something more taking place here than met the eye. Therefore, he speaks out, rebuking the other criminal, and said in verses 40 to 42 of Luke 23, Don't you fear God, he said to the other criminal, since you are under the same sentence? For we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now what did these three men being crucified here share in common? They shared the death sentence. This other criminal accepted the fact that he and the man, the criminal being crucified with him, they were guilty of the crimes committed and they were getting what they deserved. But he also recognized the injustice being imposed upon Jesus, who was not only an innocent man, but also the Messiah, the Son of God. This other criminal here, whether he recognized it or not, was making a profound statement. If his statement is taken in conjunction with Jesus' earlier statement, that the times they lived in were, as it said in verse 31, when the tree is green, then what this man is really saying is even in the good times, the seemingly good times, this world 
condemns the innocent. Even today, if you look at the United States, considered to be one of the best justice systems in the world we have today, studies estimate that 4-6% to 6 of incarcerated people in prisons today are actually innocent. But does that mean that the other 95% or so are guilty? Christ, in response to the criminal's request, demonstrates to us how he defines innocence and how vastly it differs from the world's point of view. Let's look at it in Luke 23 and verse 43. Jesus answers the man, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wait a minute now. This man was a convicted criminal. He said so himself. A sinner worthy of death. In the perception of the world, yes, he is. And he was maintaining the perception of the world when he said that to the other criminal. But in the perception of Jesus, he's innocent. Why? Because this man recognized that the Son of God is innocent. And just who is the Son of God? What did Jesus teach about who the Son of God is? Jesus' opponents were really infuriated by the fact that he referred to himself as God's Son. In fact, they were so angry with him one time that they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. So Jesus asks why they intended to stone him. And notice their reply here in John chapter 10 and verse 33. They said, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Here again, we see in the perception of these teachers, there was a clear distinction between God and human beings. God is holy, perfect, sinless. Human beings, imperfect, sinners, worthy of death. But notice how Jesus re responds to their complaint in verses 34 through 36 of John 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said, I am God's son? The scripture Jesus is quoting here is from Psalm 82 and verse 6. There God says, I said you are God's. You are all sons of the Most High. John confirms this statement in the New Testament, where he writes in verse John chapter 3 and verse 2, Dear friends, now 
we are the children of God. In this present moment, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't have full sight of what this really means, as in other words, is what John is saying here. But we know that when it is made known, we shall be like him, speaking of Jesus, for we shall see him as he is. The Greek word translated like here is homoios, H-O-M-O-I-O-S, which means resembling, similar in appearance and character. That's why Jesus, in referring to the final judgment, told his disciples in Matthew 25 and verse 40 that he said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, whatever you did for them, feed them, visit them when they were sick, uh, heal them, whatever, whatever you did for them, you did for me. In other words, there are no differences in reality between Jesus or any other man or woman you may encounter. Whoever you look upon is Christ to you. So if Jesus is the Son of God, so is everyone else. Although we may appear to be many, we are but one and the same. And that is why Jesus could say to the convicted criminal, Truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal asked Jesus to remember him because he recognized Jesus' innocence. And through that recognition, Jesus revealed to him the truth about the man's own innocence, which is why he told them that together, they would be in paradise. It's also why Jesus could forgive all of those who tortured and afflicted him. He knew their true identity and recognized that they were only doing what they were doing because they didn't know what they were doing. They were deceived, not only about who he was, but also and especially about who they were. It is only through this recognition of who we are in truth that we rise from the dead, that we pass from death to life, that we experience resurrection. This is the symbolic meaning behind the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because we are all one in Christ, to see the resurrected Christ is to see a reflection of our true self. Certainly when one looks in a mirror and sees his reflection, he recognizes himself. He sees himself as he is. So it ought to be with Christ. But what happened when the resurrected Christ appeared to his disciples? Let's look at what happened later on in that Sunday when Jesus was raised to life. We're going to read it here in Luke 24, in verses 13 through 15. It says there, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. The resurrected Jesus joins them in a discussion about recent events, but they're unable to recognize him. Why? Because human beings are only partially aware. In fact, studies have shown that about 5% of our thinking is conscience. Conscious. The other 95% of the time, we're functioning on subconscious autopilot. Our minds are elsewhere. Notice how these two disciples are carrying on when Jesus meets them. Jesus asks them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood there, faces downcast. In verse 18, one of them, Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, what he's saying there is the execution of Jesus was a very public event and well known. Verse 19, What things? Jesus asked. The two disciples were discussing the recent past with him. Their minds were preoccupied with the traumatic events associated with Jesus' crucifixion and now the stories of his resurrection. And because of this preoccupation, they cannot see who's walking right alongside of them. They saw only what they expected to see, a stranger, certainly not a resurrected Jesus. Let's break into the discussion here. The disciples are speaking here. Uh, let's look at Luke 24 and verses 21 to 24. So they're talking to Jesus and saying, what is more? It's the third day since all this took place. <laughs> this is funny. It's as if they're thinking, hmm, didn't Jesus say something about the third day when he was with us? What was it? In addition, they go on, some of the women amazed us. Now the Greek word here, translated amazed, means to astonish or cause wonderment. In other words, they were greatly surprised and perplexed at the time about what the woman told them. The women went to the tomb early that morning, but didn't find his body, it says in verse 23. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. So these disciples are obviously in a state of confusion as a result of all the events of the previous three days. They had hoped Jesus was the Messiah who had come to redeem Israel. But they ended up disappointed when they ended up being crucified. Now it's the third day after his death, and they received a report from some women that Jesus was alive. His tomb was empty, but no one had seen him. So these disciples don't know what to think at this point. 
Now Jesus, before his crucifixion, told his disciples on a number of occasions that he was to be handed over to be crucified and on the third day rise from the dead. But obviously none of this sunk into the disciples' minds. They didn't get it. So Jesus stays with them, reviews the messianic prophecies in scripture with them, and breaks bread with them. And then, in verses 30 and 31, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. When you gather at the dinner table, many come together as one to share something in common. These disciples' eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus at the breaking and distributing of the bread because they recalled back in Matthew 26, 26, that while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. It was at this point they realized Christ is with them. And it is him they are to see when they look into the mirror because his body was taken into them. That's the symbolism that Jesus meant by this. And it is him they are to see when they look into the mirror because they share in his life. And that life, proven by his resurrection, is a life that can never be lost. With that said, we will bring this episode of Change Your Mind About You to a close. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that we are all, as God created us, holy, limitless, innocent. We are God's children, yet we have been taught not to believe that, but to believe the judgment of the world instead, that we are sinners worthy of death. The crucifixion symbolizes what this world does to the children of God. There is no difference between Jesus and us. It condemns us as sinners and crucifies us as the Romans did to Jesus and the worst of criminals. And because we believe in this false judgment, we too undergo a similar slow and agonizing ordeal of suffering in this world that we call life, which ultimately ends in death. Yet the resurrection of Jesus proves that death has no effect because in God-created reality, life is not of the body, but of the spirit. Once we come to recognize to know again that our life is a shared life 
in Christ, the Son of God, we are free from the death sentence we have inflicted upon ourselves. In other words, we replace our own false judgment upon ourselves with God's righteous judgment in its stead. Remember this always. So, until next time, take good care and be well, my friends.